This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder, and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on podcast episode 199 is Alex Flores, head brewer for Urban South Brewery in New Orleans, Louisiana. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thanks for having me. Definitely an honor. We are uh, we're doing this one remotely out of the uh, brand new uh, podcast studio here at our Craft Beer and Brewing new headquarters on uh, 1300 Riverside Avenue in Fort Collins. Uh, if you are a brewer out there that sends us beer for review, please do not send to our old address uh, as of now. Um, check that email that I sent out to everyone. And if you're a brewer out there that would like to submit beer for review, I guess I should mention this too. You can uh, just pop onto the help center of beerandbrewing.com. We have a whole help center article about uh, how to get your beer reviewed in Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. We do not gatekeep it. Everyone is welcome to submit beers. There's no cost to do so. You just ship it to us. Uh, we don't guarantee that we'll review any of it. Uh, we taste through it. We try to review the best and uh, publish those top reviews in the magazine, and that's how that goes. Anyway, I digress. Let's get back to talking about brewing. Urban South brews everything from lagers to hazy and West Coast IPAs to hard seltzers and a whole lot more. Today, we're going to talk about quick sour beers. Um, the lime cucumber goza. Tangerine uh, pop, tangerine sour, rocket pop goza, the spilled line of heavily fruited sour beers. Um, this lime cucumber goza just last year at, at GABF won a gold medal in the field beer category. It seems like a great uh, opportunity to dig in and talk about how you all make compelling, heavily fruited, sometimes not as heavily fruited, some you know different kinds of quick sour beers that have different flavor goals um, and construct interesting beers that are compelling to consumers and also do that across a, a range of different kinds of flavors and iterations from clean and crisp to really over the top and fruity. And so we're going to talk about, you know, uh, you know, all of those kinds of brewing concerns. Uh, before we do that, G&D Chillers, born in the Pacific Northwest from a lot of hard work and a singular goal, they've become the best damn chiller company in the world. Like you, G&D never settles. They're relentless and strive to be better every single day because they take pride in the work they do. They're craftsmen who know that good enough just won't cut it. Visit GD Chillers at the Craft Brewers Conference booth 3011 or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, even the best yeast deserves a helping hand with seltzer fermentation, which is why Pathfinder N Pure Seltzer Nutrient ensures reliable and complete fermentation of a seltzer base while providing a clean, neutral fermentation profile. Not to mention, it provides all the essential nutrients required by yeast for production of hard seltzer bases fermented from those sweet, refined sugars. Give your seltzer yeast a boost by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com and searching for Pathfinder and Pure Seltzer Nutrient or call BSG at 1-800-374-2739. So Alex, talk to me about your history in beer. How you got where you are now as head brewer of Urban South and uh, you know what that kind of uh, arc of career you followed to get there. Yeah, so it's I've been brewing for going on 12 years now. Um, I went to Louisiana State University here in, in Louisiana. Um, I was sitting in a psychology class with my best friend, James, and we we're kind of talking in between the lecture and 
talking about home brewing, we, we'd always love digging into beers. You know, I was like Sierra Nevada Paleo. Um, this is back in 2008. Um, went home, uh, found a homebrew store about 50 miles away, uh, bought a kit, started brewing. Um, I started driving. I'm from New Orleans originally. Started driving back down and volunteering um, when NOLA Brewing had first started, just cleaning kegs, um, you know, scrubbing tanks, like whatever they needed at that, that point. They had, I think they were a few months at that point. Um, I moved out to San Diego uh, right after LSU and started working um, out there. I started, uh, before I even got out there, I called a ton of breweries, um, sent some emails, uh, got a few few calls back telling me, you have no experience, um, you know, get some experience and, and, you know, send a resume in. Um, fortunately, uh, Pat McElhenney from Alpine, uh, he actually reached out and he's like, look, man, I love your, your fact. You don't, you don't even live here yet. You're already hitting, hitting people up to, you know, work in this industry. Um, uh, but you do need some, some volunteer work. And that's, you know, I started, started putting in time, um, and I happened to find a brewery that was just opening, uh, the month I moved there, uh, to San Diego in August called Manzanita, uh, which is no longer around, but it was a small three barrel brewery. These two, uh, engineers that were homebrew friends and started this little brewery out in East County, San Diego. Um, got some time in there, uh, for free. I was driving there every day and working 12 hour days, you know, Oof. whatever they need me to do. Oh, it was brutal. It was hot. East County is basically the desert of California, of San sure. Diego. So it's super hot. Um, yeah, so we're out there brewing, doing, you know, 12 hour days brewing. Basically there's no, no rakes, no, no nothing, just all manual paddling, a gravity fed kettle, um, knockouts took two hours to knock out, you know, three barrels of beers, brutal, but it was fun. Um, got to put that on my resume. I went over to Mission Brewery about six months later. Um, and the guy, uh, John Egan, who is the former head brewer for Mission, he looked me dead in the eyes. He's like, I know you've been brewing. I know you've been, you know, I've been helping with recipe design at, at Manzanita. He's like, you're going to label bottles and clean kegs. And that's where you're going to start. And I was like, let's go. So, um, yeah, so I went back all the way back down to the to the scrub work, and which kind of still do nowadays anyway. But, um, <laughs> yeah, and then I, I moved back home uh, to New Orleans. I ran the uh, sour beer and barrel program at NOLA Brewing. Um, for about a year and a half. Uh, and then Jacob, the owner of uh, Urban South, reached out to see if I wanted to come help develop some new products for them at Urban South. And, you know, five years later, I'm now the head brewer. So I, I came in as an R&D brewer to, to Urban South. And um, after our previous head brewer uh, started his own place in Memphis, uh, Wes Osier started a brewery called Hampline up there. He moved back home. Um, I stepped into his shoes and, and here we go. So it's been, been a fun, fun path. And Took me met, met a lot of great people through the years. Got to live in San Diego, so I really can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. There's a, f- a few good breweries out in San Diego. A little bit. Um, Urban South has been on a, a pretty uh, extreme trajectory over the last few years, and um, building a, a great name for themselves, making fantastic beer, and growing very, very, very quickly. You all, you all have opened up a Houston location in addition to the the New Orleans, uh, you know, original brewery. Um, Distribution is expanding through the South. Obviously, we wrote about uh, Urban South as a case study in our latest brewing industry guide. Uh, there's a, a lot going on right there, and the the story of Urban South is is one of rapid growth right now. It really is. Um, when I first came to Urban South, um, when I first really met Jacob and, and Kyle, our other founder, you know they're they're very calculated. Um, Jacob's definitely a dreamer. Um, 
Kyle's more that the roots, the realistic, you know, numbers driven. So they both kind of balance each other out. You know, Jacob's always shooting for the moon and um, it's helped us to be really calculated in our development and our growth. We, we never seem to be over our skis and, um, you know, everything has a, as a, a purpose and a reason, you know, it's this premeditated um, attack. It's never, you know, just flying by the seat of our pants. And, it, and it's been really, it's been really fun to, to see that growth. Um, it's helped me develop professionally in a sense that it helps me to stay calm. You know, there, there's always a plan in place and, and the right resources behind. Um, you know, open in Houston, we looked at a couple of different options. We were going to distribute in Houston, you know, the way the South works is you're very hometown focused. You know, Houston is very Houston proud. New Orleans is very New Orleans proud, you know, and Alabama and Florida, um, you know, and as is most cities in the country. Um, the the premise was to, to brew beer in New Orleans, distribute it to Texas. What was a better idea was to actually hire a brewer from Texas, open up a brew pub, have, you know, roots on the ground there. Right. Um, create jobs, create a brewery there, let them do their own thing, um, which obviously they focus on a lot of like hazy and fruited sours. Um, it's where the Spilled series was born um, from our head brewer, Dave Omer, there. Um, but yeah, it was just a great opportunity to like get into the community, build jobs there, have a local brewer that already had a following, you know, really get to, you know, cut his, uh, cut his teeth in, in a whole new industry in our, you know, urban south taproom there. So it, it's, it was, it was more of a, better opportunity for us to make more of an impact on the community there than to just distribute beer and not really have any skin in the game. Um, and I think it's really worked out. They get a lot of love and beautiful tap room if you have, if you ever had a chance to visit it, but yeah, Houston um, is one of those <clears throat> underrated beer towns where, uh, or I should say there's a large audience and yeah. there are a growing number of craft breweries serving that audience. And even the existing number of breweries is not right. nearly enough to potentially serve the size of that market. It's no, I amazing. hear you. Yeah, I hear you on the on on the south. I, obviously, I grew up in uh, Orlando, Florida, and went okay. to college in Memphis uh, at Rhodes College in Memphis, and have spent a lot of time. I, my family's originally. My mom and uh, grandparents are from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and so okay. we have uh, we have a lot of southern roots, and, mm -hmm. and you know, spent a lot of time in the south. And it's yeah, you know, I know what you're saying. Yeah. It, it's even cities as close as Houston and New Orleans uh, have a pretty tight rivalry, and uh, and I'm not going to mention your LSU background because uh, <laughs> we're Florida. Gators in my household, <laughs> and uh, you know that's a that's yeah. a pretty uh, pretty heavy rivalry right there. Yeah, we're um, talking about uh, Tim Tebow another time. Those are oh my games goodness. in Tiger Stadium. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, none, nonetheless, so what is the production of Urban South up to these days, or thereabouts, yeah, so, roughly? Uh, we are on pace currently. Um, if if COVID can can stay away for this year, uh, to do about twenty five thousand barrels. Um, when I first got to Urban South, we had eclipsed 2,500. Um, so it's been quite the growth. I think every, yeah, yeah. um, we hit 18,000 in, um, 2019, um, going into Mardi Gras, which Mardi Gras is always our big spike, obviously. Sure. Um, and you know, apropos, it was also the COVID spike. So it was, um, we're on pace to do about 28,000 in 2020. Um, we finished just above 18 and a half thousand. Um, and then this year we're, we're probably fall at, I think realistically, maybe around 22 or 23, but we're on brewing on a pace of 25 right now, which is great. I mean, it's, it's incredible. So that is absolutely, uh, the, <laughs> the fast growth story. And it's, it's interesting to me that it's built on a whole bunch of different strategies. It's not just making 
hyped beer. It is making lagers for because you live in an area that's warm. And of course, Texas loves their lagers also. Right. Yeah, you're making everything from lagers to IPAs. And then, of course, a lot of fruited, uh, quick, sour beers that certainly have helped bring new audiences into the world of craft beer and make craft beer relevant for those audiences, which I think is an important thing. And even that kind of lager lover in me uh, will never write off the idea that craft brewers have found styles of beer to make craft beer exciting to people that otherwise might not drink craft beer. That's a cool thing. Let's talk a little bit more about how you make some of those beers. But first, the most uh, common complaint about hard seltzers, they need more flavor Extract alone is a weak flavoring agent that can leave a chemical aftertaste, but there's a better way. The craft concentrate blends from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first, no added sugars, and just enough natural flavor. Breweries are turning to Old Orchard concentrates for seltzer with more body, color, and aroma. Turn seltzer skeptics into supporters with seltzer that drinks like a beer. Get started at www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, with nearly 20 years of innovation and experience, Brewmation specializes in electric steam and direct fire brew houses, complete cellar solutions, and automated controls for the craft brewing industry. From the half-barrel to 30-barrel systems, Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style. Whether you're starting a new brewery, upgrading your cellar, or just need some parts to keep you up and running, Brewmation has you covered. Visit them at brewmation.com to get started. Yeah, interesting about that whole uh, uh, hard seltzer thing. One of the things I love about the way that you all brew is it tends to be, especially on this kind of seltzer hard or uh, uh, quick sour, and I'll just call them quick sours rather than kettle sours because – the processes, you know, for quick souring aren't all kettle driven these days, and and right. and that may be different. But I love that you all approach it flavor first. That uh, you've built these almost like verticals of brands like Rocket Pop that span t- uh, hard seltzer and your you know quick sour beers, and it's a flavor profile attached to the brand rather than a beer style attached to the brand. It's kind of a conceptually cool way to approach this so that if people like a certain flavor expression and they want, say, something with more acidity that uh, you know drinks more like a beer or they want the lighter hard seltzer version of that, they can flip back and forth. Yeah, so and kind of going back to our, our calculated you know path into, into a lot of these products and um, obviously Lime Cucumber Goza when we first released that beer was – a major hit, um, especially being, you know, it's hot in South, like right now it's 110 outside, um, and, and 90% humidity to, to add on top of that. But the, you know, something like a, you know, easy drinking four and a half percent goes, a um, lime and cucumber, super refreshing. Um, something like that just, just hits down here. Um, when you translate that to a seltzer, hits even more. I mean, you have that, that bubbly, you know, nice and <laughs> right, clean right. seltzer, uh, fresh pressed cucumber juice, you know, it's, it just works. And, and it's a good way because that brand already has so much love. So it's easy for people to see that in the store and they're like, Oh, I like the Goza, you know, try the seltzer and same thing with the rocket pop and, and, um, and raspberry limeade is the other one in that variety pack. But, um, yeah, it just, I think it helps people keep that brand recognition, keep brand loyalty, which I think is really tough these days. Um, so anything you can do to kind of keep everything in, in your house, you know, definitely helps. I, I find that fascinating that you could take, you have a beer, a metal winning beer, like lime cucumber Goza. And you're like, well, you know, our, our approach to flavoring this in the Goza works well. Let's apply that same process of flavor and profile 
to a hard seltzer and can we make it um, express in a similar kind of way? And, right. you know, and sometimes that's the same consumer and sometimes it's a different consumer, you know, right. but, um, you know, who just wants a hard seltzer with the different caloric and kind of, right. uh, you know, expression of that. But, uh, but what a, a fun and interesting way to kind of, you know, approach that. Let's talk about how, you know, in this kind of quick sour approach, um, some of the kind of fundamentals, you know, um, how you approach, say, building a base beer, and then what, how, you know, how you approach at a pretty significant scale, uh, acidifying these small beers. Yeah. So with, um, you know, with the Goza, it's, it's really simple. I mean, it's, it, we use a pale ale, uh, base malt, um, and then just wheat malt. Um, we use some flaked wheat as well. I mean, it's, it's super simple. I, I doubt that many Gozas really, um, you know, deviate from that kind of 50, 50 or, um, you know, whether it's flaked wheat, I, I just like the component of the flaked wheat. Um, we used to brew it with just, just white wheat. Um, I think adding 10% flaked wheat has just given us a little more, a little more depth in that beer. Um, I think it helps give a little more meat. Um, it doesn't get torp as much in the, in the kettle during the sour. Um, yeah. And then we, we use Omega's, um, souring blend. Um, we've kept it alive for going on three plus years now. Um, mm. so we just, yeah, kind of do the Solera method, um, bring it down to hundred degrees, um, add, uh, two brinks. We just do 30 gallons per, uh, 40 gallons or sorry, 40 barrels of, uh, of wort in the kettle. Um, generally we can see acidification in under eight hours. Um, so we'll knock it out at the end of the night, come in the next morning and, um, start our boil from there, harvest our So that process our is happening then in the, in the kettle itself. It is. And you're like an overnight sit overnight. for exactly. eight-ish hours in order to... Yeah, we generally see between eight what size? Sorry, what size is your kettle and then, you know, um, how much How much is your pitch? So we have a 30-barrel brew house. Um, our pitch is 30 gallons, uh, but we generally draw off about 40 barrels of wort uh, for the Goza um, into our kettle. We can get about 50 barrels in our kettle. It's kind of an oversized sure. uh, kettle. And then, uh, yeah, so we do 30 gallons of, of culture. Um, man, it's works like a charm. Just let it do its thing. And yeah. Do you, uh, you know, how do you check viability on this kind of ongoing lacto culture? You know, we'll, we'll plate it. Um, it tends to grow pretty quick. We have a, uh, we're getting a much better like sensory and lab program in the past, um, really like six to eight months. We got a guy, Colin from modern times that came in and he's really brought us to another level. Um, but yeah, generally it's, you know, we'll, we'll do some lab samples and as long as it's acidifying and under his, uh, his testing, then we're, we're good to go. But, um, really haven't had any issues. I mean, it's been three plus years now and it's still, still rock and roll. So yeah, it just rips in a similar kind rips. of time every yeah. single time. I think it's one of those things you try not to question it. You just let it, let it do its thing. <laughs> <laughs> Tastes great. And, um, of course, yeah, the more we observe and ask questions about it, the more something is eventually going to happen to it. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. The worst thing that can happen is, uh, someone boils it, but we generally keep, we'll, we'll harvest three kegs of it and then, um, pitch two and always have one just in case, but. Oh, so uh, you're drawing off a little bit before you start the boil from, exactly. from the kettle in order to kind of. Yeah. Keep so that. We'll, we'll dump a lot of the true, I mean, you'll see a lot of protein drop and, and, you know, whatever else, uh, got true over from the lauder ton. Um, so we'll dump a good bit. Um, pull what we like. We'll test it. Um, yeah. And then harvest the rest, but and just boil on. 
That's yeah, that's interesting. So I hadn't thought about how that process of souring in a kettle creates all of those additional fun pieces of having to clean that up before you start boiling it, so you're not boiling a whole mess of uh, of garbage, uh, right. you, know, th- you know, through through that. Well, yeah, wh- how do you evaluate that and kind of make a make a call as to when it's you know, clean and clear and ready to go? You know, it's it's tough in a kettle. Um... You don't really have a conical bottom there to, you know, draw off. Exactly. The slope is, is so minimal. Um, and, and lacto doesn't, I mean, it, it will a little bit, but it doesn't really give you that slurry pace like a, a yeast, um, like a, a normal brewer's yeast would. Um, you'll get, and what you're really seeing is more of what draw from the lauder ton and not, maybe not necessarily. Because um, sure. lacto, I mean, we've seen it get to 2.5. and 2.5. Um, Generally, you know, we will pull it at 3.4 is, is where we like to, to stop at and we can kind of we know between like eight and ten hours is we'll fall in that range um but with yeah we kind of draw off look at it if, if things it, get crazy you can always blend between a couple of these one is in the tank exactly you know we always have other beers on, on tap or yeah um, you know so it you know it does have to have that volume because we can we can blend out if it right if really need be but try to shoot shoot for the numbers Sure, but right, you're you're brewing this with with all of that wheat in it, and of course, that's a whole bunch of protein, and that's mm-hmm. all stuff that potentially settles out as it sits like that in in your kettle. Yeah, you get a lot of coagulation on the top. Obviously, there's a pretty interesting like lactic uh, krausen um, on top, uh, so a lot of those solids like to fall out. But you know, it's just it's part of the kettle souring process. So there's going to be a lot of a lot of junk in there. We try to run a caustic clean before we do a kettle sour, so there's no, you know, hop, uh, you know, alphas that are going to tear down the lacto. I mean, that, that's always another, another problem. We've seen that before, where we we had run IPA all week, and then we did a did a sour, and it just really wasn't going. Um, and then it kind of hits you. Oh yeah, that would have been smart to scrub those walls down. So um, kind of live and you learn. But no, that's kind of fascinating. <laughs> that uh, even you know after a. a, a simple kind of cleaning process or rinsing process there still might be still enough, something in there still enough alpha acids left right. over from from a hoppy beer yeah and that was you know that was you know all week of brewing ipa i mean it, those walls get so nasty um if you've ever looked inside of a end of the week brewing kettle they can get get pretty gnarly um and we try to do caustics every night now and run acids yeah. once a week so we can keep our brew house pretty clean but um Especially, I mean, we run so many different styles of beers. You know, the lager, obviously, you don't want any uh, sure any cross-contamination on that that side either. So, Yeah. Uh, in terms of oxygen, obviously, while you're, you're kettle souring, conventional logic has, has it that you want to minimize oxygen uptake because it tends to produce some off flavors with mm-hmm. uh, lactobacillus. Uh, you know, how do you in, in this larger brew system, um, you know, manage for that kind of lower oxygen environment or is that even a concern for you all? I mean, it's, it's a concern. And I think for us, um, you know, our, our production schedule is so tight and, and, you know, we're, we're fighting for every barrel we can get out of the brewery right now. Um, so we do everything, you know, to, you know, prohibit any sort of oxygen intake, but the, um, you know, our, we have an open stack, uh, to the atmosphere. Um, so that, that can pose, you know, a little bit of a, a difficulty. Um, we just, we generally just hook up CO2 to our uh, spray ball and let that kind of go in at a very, uh, low rate. Um, generally our lacto takes off pretty quick. We'll, we'll start to see a little like 
prickling right off the top of the the word after about an hour um so we'll see we'll see that so we know after like a few hours we'll have some pretty good action um so i'm not super concerned with it but having that blanket on top definitely helps um we haven't we we probably should in install some sort of door that goes through the the kettle stack um but we haven't we haven't had any issues and um we have an anton par c box that we can run and check and generally we come out of the kettle pretty low and it's not not anything to be worried about, but, um, and then, yeah. you know, vigorous boil, we still have to boil. So there is something with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, knock on wood, we haven't now, now my kettle sour is going to die and, and I'm going to get oxygen <laughs> on the next batch. But have you all ever in brewing these beers had, you know, that experience where oxygen produced a, you know, a little funkier flavor than you were expecting? One thing we have noticed is with, um, if we don't quite get, a very vigorous, like some mornings will come in, um, and there'll be, you know, big old crowsing head off the top of the kettle, um, where it comes up several feet. It's, you know, almost coming out of the door. Um, those tend to be a lot more, you know, I, there's a big argument. There's not a lot of depth in kettle souring. And, and, you know, I, I, I'd agree if you have a, a barrel aged sour with a mixed culture, of course, that's going to have plenty more depth than, than a stainless steel kettle soured, you know, lactic, uh, you know, base. Um, however, I think when we get these really vigorous boils, we're getting a lot more fruit. We're getting, um, these big, like punchy citrus notes that are really cool. Um, if you come in in the morning and there's not that big Krausen head, it tends to be this more dull, um, almost a little more of that THP character that, that you kind of find in these sours, um, a little more like cereal grain, like a un unfermented wort flavor with the acidity, but it's just not as pungent, not as, not as much depth. Um, so that's one thing we noticed and that's kind of where we, we've been over pitching, you know, our, our lacto, I think it's, um, instead of one brink, you know, we've been doing two just to make sure, but I think that's really helped get that vigorous crowds and that tends to produce a little bit more of that, um, depth of flavor than, you know, something, uh, a little more basic. Sure. No. So it's interesting that you are counting on some actual flavor component addition from the lacto and not just acidity that, you can sense a difference in the quality of that lactic fermentation in the kettle, right. you know, in the end product, even with, even after you're adding fruit and everything else mm -hmm. into it, that, uh, you know, that certain, you know, you're saying heavier pitches give right. you a, a better quality, you know, of, uh, of acidic fermentation there. Yeah. And I, I think in the Goza base, you know, obviously we're, we're doing cucumber and lime. Uh, there's not a lot of cucumber, right. it's not a heavy flavor. So you're going to taste, you know, it, it would taste as if we just hit it with lactic acid in the fermenter and maybe not necessarily kettle soured it. Um, I mean, I've had a lactic acid sour and you can tell when you have a lactic acid sour versus a kettle sour versus a mixed firm sour. Um, but yeah, I do believe with these vigorous fermentations, we're getting a, a lot more flavor. Um, it showed up in some of our sensory panels. Um, yeah, I just think, I think there's some more depth to it. And I think it's, you know, it's a little more, a little more nuanced than just your typical, uh, kettle sour, even though we are going to douse it with fruit at some point for some of the base. Sure. Sure. Now, now that's an interesting one that I, I would love to unpack a little bit because, mm -hmm. you know, certainly for a commercial brewery, there is, a, you know, if you're making a beer where you're putting a ton of fruit into the finished product, there is a, 
argument to be made for simply using lactic acid, you know, food grade lactic acid uh, in a fermenter rather than going through a, you know, lactic fermentation in a kettle, tying mm -hmm. that up, going through through even that process. And so, right. you know, you've got the old school long-term, you know, two-year in-wood mixed fermentation, uh, you know, kind of proponents claiming that kettle sours are too simplistic. And mm -hmm. now we've got the kettle sour argue, you know, argument that uh, the next step of easier of just adding lactic to it, it you know, produces an even less complex beer. But I'm curious about that. You know, it sounds like you may have, you know, done some just, you know, bench testing and to try to taste through and, and sample what these differences might be like. You know, how would you describe that difference, you know, in a kind of base beer with this lactic fermentation? And you called it mixed fermentation. I assume this culture that you're using from Omega of lactobacillus has more than one lactobacillus strain or simply that lactobacillus is producing more than just you know, other components, not just lactic acid. You know, how would you describe that comparison to, say, food-grade lactic acid? Right. And, and what I meant by mixed firm, I was saying compared to a, a true mixed firm, you know, sure. uh, with, with Brett and PDO and, and lacto. Um, right. We have this whole scale of complexity right. that, that starts up there with these long-term, you know, four-month to multiple-year, you know, mixed fermentation, you know, traditional wood-aged right. sour beers and then – you know, right. And here you've got this kettle sour process that is still using lactobacillus in order to produce this acidity, but it has the potential to create other compounds in addition to just lactic acid right? Um, that can also impact everything from mouthfeel to, to flavor. And then you've got buying an industrial drum of, of, of lactic food acid, grade actually. lactic acid and adding right. that to a beer to create acidity. But that is just going to be lactic acid and nothing else, you know, right. Um, yeah, talk to me a little bit about that. I'm curious about that that impact of of the the quality of you know that you all have sought out in this lactic culture that you're using for this quick fermentation. It's funny to talk uh, when you talk to people that that are doing mixed culture um, barrel, you know, two year like we're talking about um, bottled beer. You know, you, like my brain straight you know goes to to Vinny out in the West Coast and and Lost Abbey. Um, you know, Tommy down in San Diego, you know, these beers are, are phenomenal. You know, there, there's not many beers, you know, that you, you can't replace that flavor. You can't replace that effort and the time that goes into those. Like, uh, there's just nothing, you can't kettle sour your way into a, you know, a, a Cuvée de Tame. I mean, you just can't, but the, but no one's arguing that you can. I think what we've seen in the past couple of years in the beer industry is that people are trying to get beer from A to B as quickly as possible. And kettle souring is the method to do that. Now we've seen these heavily fruited sours, which, um, you know, it throws the, the beer world into a tizzy because it's, you know, the haters and the lovers and, you know, people are having fun with them. Um, and you're not necessarily going to do a mixed firm at, you know, 800 pounds of fruit per barrel. And because and, then what's the point of doing all the, the two years of aging? of sure, you know, your sure. beer. Um, but yeah, with lactic acid, I mean, if, if you've ever had- I love all these things and don't find them all mutually exclusive. And I think there's a yeah. consumption mode where it's like, if I was going to drink a fruity cocktail, I can drink a you know heavily fruited quick sour beer and enjoy it and have it light and bright or even the hard seltzer. Don't, mm -hmm. you know, don't take away my beer card for that. Right. But, uh, uh, you, you know, at the same time, if I'm in a, you know, pensive mood and want to enjoy a beautiful bottle of beer, then sure, right. I'll go grab a, a Lambic or, a, exactly. you know, an American Wild Ale that's, you know, crafted in this kind of, you know, thoughtful, contemporary, beautiful mm -hmm. or traditional, beautiful way. Um, yeah. You know, with, with, the, 
well, with the lactic acid, if you've ever had a lactic acid sour, you're, it has this tanginess to it. I mean, you can, you can tell right away that it was a, a lactic acid sour. There, there's a tangy to it, sure, tanginess sure. to it. There, there's not a lot of depth of flavor. You have the acidity, but it's not necessarily a rounded acidity. It's very disjointed, you know, sharp acidity. And then the other flavors that, you know, if it's a, let's say a mango lactic sour, it's lactic tang mango fruit and they're they're on opposite sides of the table they're not necessarily you know together and i find with you know a kettle sour you're at least having a base that is sour together that is harmonious in its flavors fermented with you know whatever strain you want to use um and then you're putting it on you know whatever your secondary flavors are um and i think that's a way to like marry everything together rather than just adding lactic acid after the fact the whole process is done. You know that like during the boil, you're, you're homogenizing all your flavors during the fermentation, you're, you're homogenizing even further. And then if you, you know, like for us, we, we use a recirculation pump. So we're adding fruit, we're recirculating it. And then, you know, we're packaging it, carbonating it together. So everything is done together versus let's get this beer to the bright tank. Let's pump in two liters of lactic acid and carbonate it. It's such a separate after the fact. Um, and I think it's the same way you taste, you know, you can taste an extract, uh, flavoring versus like real fruit, you know, like a coconut versus like real coconut, you know, there, there's a big, you know, there's a d- disjointed flavor. And I think that's what you get when you take that, you know, obviously kettle souring is a shortcut, but lactic acid is definitely the, you know, yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's, we'll dive into a few more complexities on this, but first your beer deserves all your attention. Clarion makes that a little easier. Their food grade lubricants will help keep your system running smooth while also safeguarding your product from costly contamination and recall, because then you'll be in full compliance with food safety standards. And it's all thanks to a simple switch to Clarion. A food safe system lets you focus on your craft. We'll drink to that. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. You know, the, no matter what beverage kind of sector you're in, whether if you're in winemaking, you know, winemakers have acid blends to, you know, to uh, tweak and adjust the way that their fermentation expressions, you know, come out, but they don't just use those commercial acid blends without the kind of natural base. I I mean, we find the same thing in kind of adjunct flavoring that, uh, you know, oftentimes more brewers than will admit to it are using some sort of extract because extract tends to express really well in aromas. Um, but if you just use that extract and you're not using some of that real ingredient, the flavor is not going to be as compelling. And so a lot of times these things are used, you know, can be used in, in, you know, concert with each other rather, you know, but if it's simply a lactic acid without that, you know, food grade lactic acid without some of that natural component, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, you're also, because again, these lactic acid bacteria produce other compounds in addition to just lactic acid. And some of those things do kind of create the, everything from, you know, the, the mouthfeel and sensation, obviously wheat's doing a big part of that too, right. you know, with these kinds of, with this kind of goza, um, you know, but all of those things working together are, are what kind of even make them compelling as what they are. Uh, but it, you know, it's an interesting way to think about that. I mean, um, you know, yeah, you could, if you didn't quite hit your acidity goals, you certainly yeah. could add a little bit of food grade lactic acid to it. But if it was just, uh, you know, if that was all it was, then right. it wouldn't quite be the same. And I, and kind of what we talked about earlier, we we're joking, but you, you still have an opportunity to make your beer right before it hits consumer, you know, and if sure. that's adjusting with lactic acid or, or citric acid or, you know, adding more fruit or, you know, blending out to, 
you know, to mute some flavors. I mean, I think all those things are acceptable. People, you know, I, there's both camps, you know, you put in the effort to do the, you know, mixed firm barrel beers and, and they're wonderful. And then people also, you know, you do your best effort to make a clean kettle sour, um, you know, and I think they're, can play both. I remember when craft beer, you know, everyone was like, we can do so much. We're, we're better than the big guys. And then now everyone tries to, you know, stifle other people and they talk, you know, talk trash about certain styles, but that's what craft beer is. I mean, people are experimenting, people are having fun. I mean, that's the whole point of it. And I think if, if you actually put effort and, and quality behind whatever method you're doing, um, you know, at least that, that's at the end of the day, that's, that's a great thing. I think for consumers and for our industry and as a whole. I think that last point that you make is exactly right. That if you approach a spirit of experimentation and trying new things and creating new flavors, that is a beautiful and fantastic thing. Do it with integrity mm -hmm. and do it with authenticity. And if you find yourself taking, you know, corporate production shortcuts in order to speed up production mm -hmm. and drive more profit or, you know, at, at the expense of quality, then maybe that's not the craft approach, you know? Um, but that you can certainly take a, even making these styles of beer that are more acid and fruit forward and not as built around funk and complexity, and whatnot, yeah. Britannomyces, then, uh, you know, th these can be interesting expressions right. and they can make compelling beers, you know, just make them with, uh, you know, that kind of craft yeah. mentality. And I, I've been in, uh, I think it was, yeah, CBC it was two years ago in Denver and, um, the last, I guess the last one, um, I got into a, a spirited debate with, uh, with someone from Chicago and basically, you know, saying that fruited sours are garbage and there's no complexity and there's, you know, there's no funky and it. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, well, it's not a, it's not a funky beer. I mean, it's a kettle sour with fruit. These, I, we're not trying to make a lambic. We're not, so it, you're, you're mad about it, but you're also not describing the, the right product at the end of the day. I mean, it, these, the cantaloupe mango fruited sour we just made, it's not supposed to be this bread heavy because there is no bread. There is no, you know, mixed culture. Um, it's supposed to be about the fruit, about the cantaloupe and mango, um, you know, being a fun concoction into a, into a can. And, um, but it's just funny. It's, it's, you know, putting that effort behind it and making a fun product, I think is at the end of the day, the, the right move. Um, no, and I think that, that, I think that's also an important distinction that uh, all, all of these are different products and they can coexist and that one is not trying to be another right. one is not a, you know, I, I know that there are traditional sour beer makers who are frustrated that the market for traditional sour beer has changed or fallen off or hasn't, you know, continued to grow in the way that they expected mm -hmm. it to. Um, I don't think that it is quick sour beers that have caused that necessarily. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, that there is, was always a limited market for the kind of person that wants to enjoy a very complex, funky, um, you know, Britannoiasis forward mm -hmm. you know, kind of sour beer. I love them. I drink a lot of those. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I can also, I, you know, I can, that market is not yeah. a big and broad one in the same way that there are specialty uh, spirits and wines mm -hmm. and everything else that not everybody is going to drink because they're challenging. And that is okay. 
Um, but these are, you know, as you said, these are these are kinds of different approaches. We've we've dive, uh, veered off into this kind of uh, philosophical realm there, and yeah. I want to kind of get back and talk a little bit about brewing. Um, talk to me about water and salinity. Uh, especially in Goza, that, uh, you know, are there, is there any special approach to water? Obviously being in the South, I mean, that water is not as pristine and, uh, you know, it doesn't come out of the the pipe for you in the same way that it might for some of us who have, you know, beautiful mountain water running off of uh, uh, surface reservoirs. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you uh, make sure that the water that you brew with, uh, you know, helps express these beers in the best way possible. And then talk to me about how uh, you dial in salinity for something like a Goza. Yeah, so um, we are fed directly river water, which we get all the uh, trash from, <laughs> from Oof. you know, all, all the way from up north. Uh, sure. So sure. Our, our water, by the time it gets down here, is, you know, we, we have the name the Muddy Mississippi for a reason. Um, so we, we use RO. Um, and strip our water down. We get it tested pretty regularly, and there's pretty much all zeros across the board, um, which is which is great. It also creates a little bit of difficulty, especially you know you get start to get in like New England um, IPAs and things like that that require a lot more um, uh, carbonate levels and obviously chloride and, and sulfate ratios and things like that. But um, you know, with a with a Goza, it's it's actually really nice. Um, we can start really simple. You know, we try to hit. Um, I like a more chloride forward, almost a little bit heavier than uh, one to one, you know, maybe like one and a quarter to one uh, sulfate, um, just to have a little bit more fullness. I, I try to think on um, the back end, you're going to have, you know, that lactic, a little bit more, you know, a sharp mouthfeel. Um, we generally carbonate to a pretty high volume, so there's a bit of a bite on that end as well. So I think a more full, soft uh, water profile kind of helps. Um, you know, balance that that product out a little bit, and that's kind of where we, sure. we've headed. Um, and I'm not, you know, I, I, through the podcast, I hear a lot of brewers. They always talk about tweaking and um, these calculated, and and we are as well. I, I like to. We do a lot of sensory. You know, if we start picking up on something we don't like, or if we have another product that we're like, oh, we kind of like that, we'll dig into it a little bit and, and develop our water profile. But that that's where we're at now. Is a little more calcium chloride heavy um, as opposed to sulfate. We used to be more sulfate heavy. Um, and then for salt, we're doing uh, about 0.1 pounds per uh, barrel of, uh, of salt. So we will add it depending on what our end volume is going to be. So we try to be as calculated with that as possible. Um, so we're adding the same amount every time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a nice soft salinity. The base goes is really nice. We do coriander as well. So you get that, that nice coriander and salt uh, right. component. Um, but yeah, our, our Goza doesn't tend to be too heavy in the salt. Um, I know there are other, a few other on the Gulf Coast that are, are pretty salty, almost drink like a uh, margarita um, with the amount of salt that's in it. And for, for our flavor profile, and, and we tend to like, we don't really want as much salt as, you know, as some of those uh, more heavily salted Gozas, but um, kind sure. of distra- distracts a little bit for, for my taste anyway, so. Yeah, a little bit of salt is a nice way to kind of put a finer point on the, the the other fruit flavors in there, and too much, then it just becomes about the salt. Yeah, it's a little salty, and it's a little it gets a little briny. And I think with the, um, you know, we already get it when I, I we just did finally a, a beer festival in Nashville um, about a month ago, and you get. 20 people that come up and they love the lime cucumber goza. And then you get that one person every 20 people that's like, this tastes like a pickle. And I think when that, that salt tends to be higher, they, the pickles comments seem to be higher. I think you get more of that brininess. So I think, um, you gotta, you gotta be really careful with, with how much salt you're throwing at, 
if you're going with cucumber anyway. But also, I don't. The salt kind of gives me a, a burning sensation in my mouth when it's too heavy, um, and that's kind of what we picked up in sensory panels. Um, that it kind of leaves a little bit of that astringency on your tongue. So something yeah. we've kind of laid back from. I always tend to get more watermelon than cucumber out of cucumber beers. Interesting. You know, they're, the, the they're so simple. They're so similar, mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, you know, I find that, yeah, generally speaking, especially if there's a little bit of a, little bit of residual sweetness to it, um, you know. In terms of that, what's a what's a finishing gravity for something like cucumber lime go goza? Yeah, goza generally finishes between one and a half Play-Doh and one point eight. Um, so we'll see pretty high yeah. actually. It's a little bit of sweetness, which I you know it works really well for for that beer. Um, you know, I, I think uh, when I was at Nola, a lot of our uh, sours finish that you know negative and they would be very 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 harsh um they require a pretty good amount of blending to really get that mouthfeel to be um acceptable as i would call it um it would right. rip, your, rip your tongue apart but i think with a little bit of uh, higher and that's not not very high by any means um but it, it definitely helps to promote a little bit more of that mouthfeel a little bit more sweetness and um you know, I think that with, you know, something like cucumber that doesn't have a lot of sweetness, if you have a little bit of the base sweetness in your, in your, your finished product, um, it kind of helps promote that fruit a little bit more, um, give it a little more life. You know, it's, it, oftentimes I, I feel like a lot of people experience like watermelon's a great one where I'd say, you know, half the time, if not more, when someone's having a watermelon product, it's probably fake watermelon. Um, so the idea they have of watermelon in their head is, is, you know, a, um, a sweeter, more candy-like product. And I think when you have a sweeter base, it kind of promotes some of that natural fruit flavor. Um, you know, I think it, it definitely helps promote some more flavor in our, our goza. Yeah. Let's talk about fruit. Uh, cause certainly that's a big part of this. And, uh, you know, so from in terms of process, you know, you knock out out of this kettle, um, what do you tend to, what do you ferment with, uh, to, to ferment the beer itself? Yeah, so for our goza, we just use our uh, we just use USO five, just kind of our house easy brick to throw just clean in. Clean and neutral, and, yeah. clean and neutral, and loves loves the acidity. Um, cranks right off. Um, we knock out at sixty four degrees, and we set at sixty six, so we let it let it rise up to sixty six. Um, we're generally seeing four to five day ferments. Um, we'll go through some diacetyl tests, and then we'll crash. Um, yeah, centrifuge and move on um, to fruiting. Uh, back to the bright tank. So we add all of our cucumber juice and lime juice into the to the bright tank for carbonation. And you do it with juice then in a liquid form rather than a puree or whole fruit or anything anything like yeah, that. Yeah. So we actually we get uh, we use a local company called Louisiana Fresh. Um, so we'll get um, we do about 0. 0.7 um, gallons of cucumber juice per barrel of beer. So we'll get um, so basically I'll see how much beer we're going to have in the bright tank. Order that many cases of cucumber. We have a juicer in house, so we'll actually hand juice all the cucumbers um, in the line. Wait, you hand juice your own cucumbers? <laughs> yeah, it's pain that's in insane. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a uh, it's fun the first. You don't few just times, order but... puree or or pre juiced <laughs> stuff and then no. okay okay. We've uh, we we've ordered some extra or not extracts but uh, purees from uh, Florida Bulk, and they're 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 fine. They're just not quite right. Um, so we just we just juice them ourselves. We we bought an industrial juicer uh, from a local kombucha company. They got a bigger one, and um, yeah, actually tomorrow we're juicing. So if you happen to be in town and you want to help out, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's fun. I mean, it, it's good too. It's it's fun. It makes the brewery smell good, and you know, it puts a little more love into the beer. So, and so your brewers get experience uh, juicing in addition to to brewing beer. Yeah, it's like uh, um, 
they scatter like cockroaches when I bring the cases out. They're nowhere to be found. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah. So how many cases of, of cucumbers do you go through with this industrial juicer for a 30 barrel uh, plus batch? Yeah. Tomorrow we're, we'll package about 80 barrels of uh, Goza and uh, I think I ordered 16 cases of cucumber. So it'll be a, be a nice long couple hours, but. How much uh, liquid cucumber juice does 16 cases of cucumbers produce? Um, that should get me – that will get me I'm about curious, 50 like 50 gallons. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah, right, yeah, right at 50 gallons. So. And 50 gallons of, of freshly juiced cucumber in a 80-barrel batch is enough to kind of yeah. push that expression of cucumber in? Yeah, it will come through. Cool. Yeah, so we actually we have a, our our floor hopper. Um, it's about a three barrel floor hopper. Um, so we'll put the we'll put all the juice into there. Um, we'll add all the um, close it up, and then we'll we'll bubble CO two through it for you know, sure. Deaerate it, and then we'll pump that in. Um, yeah, and then we generally bubble from the bottom of our bright tank for about an hour just to homogenize everything, and then we'll start carbonation from there. So. Um, makes yeah. sense. How about lime? How, how, how do you do the, you do you juice your own limes also? We get, uh, we just get lime juice. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, juicing limes would be, be a little more difficult, but yeah, just lime juice. So that makes more yeah. sense to me. That's a little easier. That, and that's just, you know, that's makes more sense than, uh, juicing tiny key limes are very, very tiny. So how much, uh, you know, how much residual sugar comes out of, uh, of a cucumber or, or these limes. Now, clearly you're centrifuging before you get to this process. And so you are trying to remove all the yeast, you know, from this to prevent refermentation, but right. you're definitely adding, you know, uh, fermentables back into this mix. And there is a, even after a centrifuge potential that some yeast gets through, um, you know, talk to me about managing that kind of process. Yeah, we, we haven't seen um, we haven't seen any growth. You know, we'll do some uh, lab or you know basically just do an Erlenmeyer at room temp. Um, we haven't seen any growth or, or any fermentation signs. Um, the cucumbers really don't show up any sugar. Um, if mm. anything, it's very minimal. Um, and yeah. We haven't gotten anything from the lime juice either, so it's it's all pretty minimal. I think once we um, disperse it all into the bulk of the beer, um, so yeah, we, we've been pretty pretty good about that are there so, other fruit additions that you make that uh that do carry more sugar additions that uh, pose more challenges around that yeah so you know our specialty beers are our weekly releases of fruited sours though obviously we're adding puree to those and those are <laughs> picking up some pretty heavy heavy bricks um those we're treating with uh sorbate um about sure. five par parts per billion so it's really not super high um but it's enough to you know, nothing knock down yeast activity. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll centrifuge all that. Um, we'll, we'll do the sorbate and then we'll do, um, we'll fruit, we'll check gravity for a week. So we'll do anywhere from five to seven days. Um, generally don't see any, any fermentation and then we'll, we'll go from there. But yeah, those were, those were a little tricky off the start trying to find the right threshold. Um, yeah, obviously you can go really high with the sorbates and then get people sick or you can, you know, go as small as possible and, and hope, you know, that it's enough to, you know, put down the yeast activity. Right. So that, you know, it makes sense that that centrifuge plus low amounts of sorbate, uh, you know, gets you to that point where, uh, you're not having to overdo it with chemicals, but, uh, you know, that's, it becomes enough to prevent the small amount of yeast that might slip through from, from doing anything right. negative there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've had good results there, so. 
how much i mean obviously there's plenty of uh, of discussion of heavily fruited sour beers and can bombs and everything else floating out there in the world and and it's as a production minded brewery that's producing a quite a bit of beer um you know you don't have a luxury of just putting it out there and uh and then hoping everything works out you need to make sure that things are going right on that right um yeah but how much for you all does consumer expectation you know play into this you know clearly people with these beers some people know you know keep it refrigerated and keep mm -hmm. it in good shape and other people wonder why their cans are deforming uh you know right. as they have left them warm in their in their car for a week right um you know you uh you know for you all you, you don't have the luxury of being there and explaining things to people and so you just kind of have to to make sure that it, it's in good shape as it goes out of uh, out of your brewery yeah you know that that's a lot of weight on on a on the shoulders of a brewery. And I, I think it, you owe it to the consumer. And, I, and we talked about that earlier of, of, you know, making sure that you're taking efforts to put out the most quality product. Um, you know, and, and not to say that we haven't had our issues with exploding cans. Um, you know, early on we were having, having a few issues um, and we've really ramped up our, our lab and sensory program um, to, and our incubation. And, you know, we're putting a lot of our fruited sours at 110 degrees and, and not seeing anything after a month, you know, no explosions, um, cans get a little tight, but, you know, check carb and it's only gone up, you know, 0.2, you know, so we, we generally carve our fruited sours to about 2.2 volumes. So it may go up to like 2.3, 2.4, um, which is fairly insignificant. Um, sure. as far as You're still you within know, the threshold for can. cans. Right. right. And, um, but, you know, things like that are, are really important to us. You know, we, we've bought back a lot of beer. We've recalled products. Um, you know, a lot of these small batch beers early on. Um, our Houston brew pub had, had a few issues early on. Um, and we, you know, conscious effort that we won't put this beer out again until we figure out our, our process. And, and we've done a great job of that. I mean, we've had, you know, here we go again, several, almost two years now of no exploding cans. So oh, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure I'll get we're some We're jinxing everything tomorrow. right now. Um, <laughs> Might as well throw it out there. But yeah, I think, no, I think it's really important. I don't think it's on the consumer at all. Um, yeah. I just saw a Reddit thread about a local brewery um, having some issues and, you know, everyone was kind of dogging on this guy about, you need to keep it in the fridge. It needs to be kept at 30 degrees. And, you know, it's like, what is it? A COVID vaccine. We need to keep them at sub, you know, thermal temperatures to, you know, to store beers like that. That's not fair to the consumer, you know, and, I, and rightfully so you shouldn't keep them out, especially in our heat, you know, out in your 110 degree garage. But you know, I think the consumer should feel safe buying a beer from the store, going home, putting it in their fridge and not expecting it to explode in their face. And I think that's a fair, you know, unspoken agreement between the brewery and the consumer. I'd be, I'd be pissed if, if that happened to me, you know? <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, it's, it's an interesting and weird time in beer for that, you know, I, and I, we see it with, you know, this, this past year of everyone pivoting to, you know, small canning lines and having to do that in order to stay alive and dealing with oxygen issues that come with that because it's, you know, eliminating oxygen when you're selling it all over your tap, you know, out of serving tanks or, or out of kegs, you know, in your own tap room is just less of a concern. If something turns, you, you know, dump the rest of the kegs and, right. you know, you move on. But, uh, you know, once that's in a can, well, you've got a huge investment in, time if you've used a mobile canner and mm -hmm. you know cans that are harder to get these days you know all of these other things you know and having to recall a, a batch just because 
you know, of uh, the beer has gotten shattered through oxygen, you know, like that sucks. And so we're in this big, it's been a huge learning curve for commercial breweries out there over the past year on that kind of thing. Same kind of thing with this, these kinds of progressive beer styles with heavily fruited, you know, American sour beers, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they pose these technical challenges and, uh, you know, the, I think the window for, accepting that learning curve is there and mm-hmm. we're past that at this point point. Right. and the consumer market because you know enough breweries have spent the last couple of years figuring out how to get better at this so that that isn't a concern for their business. yeah and I, you know I, I i think on multiple levels too if you're not reaching out to other local breweries or you know our industry is so wide open there's so many resources now to reach out to to you know, for us, we don't have as many breweries in, in New Orleans as, you know, Fort Collins or San Diego or, you know, bigger cities. But, um, you know, there's enough people you can get on the phone. You can get on the Master Brewers website. You can get on, you know, simple Google. I mean, you can find resources. There's no excuse to, to put out these these inferior products um, and put it on a consumer, you know. And it's like, well, it's not it's not our problem. You you It's yours now. You know, and, and that type of mindset you know, makes the industry as a whole look bad. And, and I, you know, I don't think that's really fair to, to put on the consumers, but I, you know, I do think there, you have to take some responsibility for your product. And, you know, we, we look at our products. If, if our DO is high on one of our beers, then I mean, we can't put it out. I mean, that's just not, that's not fair to the consumer. That's, you know, we talked about lime cucumber, have a following our paradise park lager. You know, if we put out a beer that's 500 parts per you know million, DO and we're like, well, it'll be out there and it's not our problem. It'll sell fast enough, whatever. You know, that's, that's not really fair to the consumer that loves our product, you know, buys it religiously and they go to have it. And it's a subpar experience. Like, I, I just don't, you know, I don't think that that's, you know, you shouldn't have to shoulder that burden as a consumer. And, you know, we now that we've stepped up our, our lab and sensory a lot more, and I, I think it's been really helpful and eye-opening to see how we can better our process and make ourselves, you know, of course, you want to be efficient and you know profitable because those are that's why you run a business. But at the same time, you, the only way to really do those things is to be consistent and have people trust that your product is going to be great every single time and not a you know flip of a coin. Sure, sure. No, and I think that's why you know most of us got into this in some way or another. That uh, mm-hmm. no one got into this to make money by putting subpar product out there into the market that, uh, yeah. you know, that, that people connected with in, uh, in unpleasant ways, you know, mm-hmm. everyone's here that I know does it because they want to make people happy and, and ultimately, you know, beer makes people happy. And if yeah. we can, uh, kind of keep focused on that, then, uh, you know, and use that as kind of a guiding principle, I think we'll be better in general. <laughs> um, you know, we've talked a lot about technical stuff, which is actually pretty fun. Normally, um, you know, but one of the things we haven't talked about is creative process. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in this because, again, you all approach it from this like flavor kind of idea with uh, you know branding that then expresses itself in different kinds of styles of beverage. You know, with a similar kind of flavor branding on it. Um, talk to me a little bit about that creative process behind Urban South and how you all think about and build flavors and then settle on and then build these flavor brands that uh, you then extend into different realms. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of our core products, um, obviously lime cucumber, you know, transcends from seltzer to, to goza rocket pop as well. Um, there's a lot of brand recognition with, 
with our beer first, and now we're, we're kind of stepped into the, the seltzer game. Um, so we wanted to have that kind of cross recognition. It's also, you know, at the end of the day, as much effort and, and time as we spend um, making the product, forecasting the products, selling the product, social media, marketing, you know, to create a new product, you know, and how do we develop these seltzers? And we, I remember day one of, of seltzer, um, recipe development. It was, we were trying to think of all these crazy ideas and different flavors. And then it kind of hit us like, why don't we take some of our heavy hitting beer flavors and put them into seltzer form? And, you know, it'll, it'll, it's easy marketing. It's already done. We'll just refresh it for the seltzer. Um, it's recognizable, you know, people like it. it it's tried and true. And, and it, it helped us to kind of like refocus on like, we do have like, this strong following on, on some of these core products and, you know, and it, it, that takes a little of the creative process out because then you already have it ready to go and you're, you're just dialing up the flavors and recipes and, and going from there. Um, but, you know, with, with some of our uh, weekly releases, you know, we do a lot of these heavily fruited sours. Um, there's a um, kind of a series that I'm, I, I personally love and kind of proud of right now is our fruited coffee sour series called Drip. Um, those have been really fun. Work with fruited oh, coffee sour. Fruited coffee sours, yeah. I have to say, okay. the last one we just did was um, we did an orange and almond um, uh, coffee sour. Uh, so we did a Honduran natural coffee. Um, yeah, it's it's it tastes like an almond orange cream sickle. It's pretty insane, but um, those have been really fun. But things like that were kind of stepping out of the box, stepping out of the realm. And I, you know, there a lot of people are doing fruited coffee sours, but. Um, Maybe not a lot of people, but a few people. But the, uh, but yeah, things like that where, you know, I look at. Um, How do you, what's the creative process behind it? Like, uh, you know, where do you find the inspiration? And then talk to me through how you build what you're actually going to flavor this with. And then, you know, what, how that process looks. Because, I mean, when you come up with almond coffee sour, that just seems you know, like there's a whole bunch of problems to solve along the way to get are, yeah. from the, you know, from the idea into the execution. Yeah. That's a thing. It's brewing one-on-one. It's just solving problems. It's not necessarily sure. you creating no solutions. You're just trying to figure your way to the end product. But the, um, yeah, with something like that, uh, our, our marketing director, Abby had a cocktail one time that was a orange and almond cocktail. Um, she was like, I feel like this would make a good fruited sour. And then we started talking and, I was like, I feel like that'd make a, a really fun drip, kind of a more courageous drip, because all the other ones we've done have been a lot of berry fruits, strawberry, raspberry. Sure. Um, Playing on some of the flavors that are already there in the coffees. Exactly. Um, you know, and something like this is really stepping out of the boundary of coffee a little bit, um, or maybe at least the what most people, you know, think of when they think of coffee. Um, so this is something we, we put on paper. Um, she got the labels made, and <laughs> we went from there. So it's kind of... Um, yeah, it took a, a sweeter orange profile. So my whole idea behind it, it, it has a lactose base as well. Um, so it's actually called Drip Olay. But we did um, kind of this like almond cream base and then sweeter orange. So we got Valencia orange juice, added that, um, kept adding orange until it was like just enough before it got a little, like too tangy, too sour because um, you're already on top of a sour base. And then, um, yeah, I did 12 pounds when you of say coffee. Keep it, when you say keep adding orange, are you saying you're like adding this through your dosing tank, yeah, tasting yeah. the result, and then kind of evaluating, um, recirculating right. to homogenize and then tasting it? Exactly. So, okay. yeah, add a little bit, um, recircle our pump, add a little bit more until we got 
it was kind of getting to that point where it was a little too tangy. Um, and that's where I stopped. Um, and then with the coffee, it was a hundred natural coffee. That's was pretty, uh, pineapple-y and, and kind of fruity and funky smelling. Um, we did half whole bean, half coarse ground. Um, so it was about three pounds of coffee per barrel of beer. Um, so I do, I do a coarse ground steep first. Um, that really helps get like a lot of that like flavor and on the palate. Um, and then I kind of consider the whole bean, which is, um, kind of a waste of a bean, but it does give that really, really, really almost like a fresh bag of coffee smell. And I think that a lot of times gives people the perception more of the coffee and it's not necessarily killing the palate because they can kind of get a little, little weird in the palate. Um, but if you do enough coarse ground where there's some flavor, but enough whole bean where there's a big aroma, you can kind of create that that kind of 360 uh, profile that I think really works well in this, this beer oh, so or that, that mix, product. You mix whole bean and ground coffee. I do both. Okay. Yeah. And then with the whole bean, you know, you have a little bit more of a uh, window before it gets to that uh, bell pepper. Um, you know, I really right. see after about 42 hours, we'll get start to pick up that bell peppery, you know, pepper skin um, flavor, but with coarse ground, I, I don't like to go over 24 hours. If anything, I'd like to just go like 12 hours. So I might do it like late in the evening and pull it the next morning, um, to avoid any like over extraction, especially with the sour, it tends to pull a little harder than if you were on a, a more basic beer. Makes sense. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's been a, it's been a fun, uh, definitely a learning experience with, with coffee and sour and fruit and everything else. But it's been, I think, uh, yeah, I think people are liking them. Definitely adventurous. Um, How do you balance the acidity with, uh, you know, that kind of roasty, you know, potential, you know, the sharpness that coffee brings to it? Yeah, you know, that's that's always a challenge as well. And I think what the whole bean brings is you get a little less of that. Um, A lot of times we'll have the roaster kind of go to that medium to light uh, roast. So it's not as acidic. Um, Also, I think the time time helps a lot. Um, You know, I think having them cup the coffee beforehand, um, they kind of tell you this, this one tends to pour a little more acidic. This one's a little more full and rich. Um, if a coffee's going to be more acidic, I might go, you know, a pound and a half per barrel or even a pound per barrel versus, you know, three pounds per barrel with something, you know, this natural is a little more sweet and full. And they say a lot of like sugar cane molasses type mouthfeel. So I felt a little safer going three pounds per barrel on that one. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, take, and that's another thing, reach out, you know, how does this coffee drink? Cause they, they know their coffee's in and out and that's a good way to know. And with the thing too, you can always add more, <laughs> you can never, never go back. So that's, you know, the way we kind of look at a lot of our fruit sours. Sure. Sure. Um, what I love about this is, I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about, uh, you know, sour, quick sour beers mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, at the same time you, that's not the biggest, they're not the biggest beers that you brew. You <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like I said, you brew IPAs, lagers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a whole lot of other styles of beer you know, as well. This is just one of the more fun kind of right. you know, areas that you all love to play and explore in. Um, but Alex, it's been really fun to talk to you about this. Um, from a big picture standpoint, uh, um, what's next for Urban South? Where do you where do you all see this going? And, uh, you know, what, what's that's the next big challenge on your horizon? Yeah, I mean. We, we're continuing to grow. Um, we're expanding our markets. You know, we just opened up uh, Tennessee. Uh, we opened up South Alabama and South Mississippi. Um, it's been really great. You know, we're, we're always looking for, um, for new markets. You know, we'd, we'd love to open up another taproom somewhere, um, kind of like our Houston brew pub. So it would be its own entity, own brew team, um, you know, some, a new market. Nothing really on the horizon yet, but, you know, it's kind of, we, we've pitched that idea around quite a bit. 
Um, you know, I think I'll, you see a lot of breweries right now kind of doing that same format. You know, it's a good way to enter a new market and, and put skin in the game. Um, yeah, for us, you know, we're, we're really getting into our lab. I think quality has been a, a big, big thing for us, and it's been great. Um, trying to keep up with demand. Um, now that all the bars and restaurants are finally opening up, we're, we're seeing an uptick in sales, which is, is great. So, you know, continue to build out our facility and focus on efficiencies and quality. And, um, yeah, just keep on building a great team. I mean, it's been incredible growth the past couple of years and, um, and trying to stay innovative. I mean, that's where things like drip have come out and, um, you know, I'd really love to, to stay on that cutting edge for, for our team and, and the city, you know, it's, it's been fun to see all the love and, and craziness we've been able to push out of our brewery the past couple of years, but you know, it's exciting stuff. Keep talking to people like you <laughs> win some more medals. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, fingers crossed for you guys this year. Yeah. Um, if what I've tasted is, uh, is any example, then, uh, I think your, uh, your chances are really good. Yeah. I'll send you some of the, the drip for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Contact G&D Chillers about the best damn chillers in the world. Give your yeast a helping hand with Pathfinder N-Pure Seltzer Nutrient. Craft concentrate blends from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first. Brumation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs. Make your system 100% food safe with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you want to support this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on the subscribe button. We have a whole bunch of awesome content coming down the pipeline for our all-access subscribers on the pro and the consumer side and some really killer classes that we filmed a couple weeks ago in, uh, in California, including classes with folks like uh, Firestone Walker, Russian River, Alvarado Street, Cellar Maker, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we have a brand new course out this uh, month right now with uh, Jester King, Jeff uh, Stuffings of Jester King, talking about brewing farmhouse sales. So fantastic content coming out of that channel, and we would love your support out there for it. Our next episode coming up, uh, podcast episode 200 it's some sort of arbitrary milestone because it's an even number and so we're going to call it special just for that reason uh, but we have ken grossman from sierra nevada joining us for uh, a conversation i recorded a couple of weeks ago when i was out in california from a beautiful coast of california and it's a it's a it's a fun one to check back in with ken who's been such a force in the brewing industry uh alex if you want to learn more about urban south and what you do try to find your beers and, and taste some of your handiwork uh where do they find you all yeah, so uh, you can come to our tap room in New Orleans, um, located right outside of downtown. Uh, Urban South Beer is our Instagram handle, um, Urban South Brewery on Facebook. Uh, we do have a Twitter, probably not as uh, popular with most Twitter people. Twitter sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and, There's um, no picture. Well, I guess there could be pictures. Some pictures, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. But yeah, we're most heavily on Instagram and, and Facebook and reach out. And uh, We also sell beer to through Tavor, um, so if, if that serves one of your lovely cities you can also buy it through there and if uh, you live in the houston area we have a group up uh, in the west side of houston so come check us out well it's been fun to talk to you about uh, brewing these quick sour beers flavor forward fruit forward etc uh, appreciate you sharing your thoughts since uh, we got fairly in depth there and it was, yeah. it was kind of fun to, to pick that apart that was fun a little philosophical yeah for sure for sure anyway thanks for talking to me on the podcast cheers yeah thank you have a good one This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.